Launch Left, an intentional space for art and activism, a podcast, a label, a launch pad for left of center artists. Today's guest is so freaking exciting. There's so much to say about this person, legend of left of center and of activism and punk rock and everything exciting about art and music. Before I introduce him, please rate and subscribe, follow us on all socials, and I'm going to try not to be too nervous. Welcome to the show, Wayne Kramer. Hi. I will just rattle off some of the things. Obviously, you're the co-founder of MC5, which was probably the earliest thing you're known for because you were a teenager at the time um, with your friend, Fred Sonic Smith. You guys formed that band. Um, you know, you're a composer, you're uh, a a nonprofit founder, you are a father. Yeah, I mean, so many things. And you're from Detroit, which is like the coolest. <laughs> I'm old now, so they accumulate. That I guess that's true. There's one thing that I'll say through all these different Wayne Kramer identity things is your um, your activism, pointing out injustice and and making an effort to sound out whatever you can, your unapologetic activism. My delusions haven't been such that they include the things that I do and the view of the world that I think I share with a lot of people, um, that one person can make a difference, a handful of people can make a huge difference. So if you can get a dozen people together who share your vision and are all willing to commit full measures, um, you can make things happen. I totally agree with that. It's always like a small group of people that completely commit to something. And um, that's an interesting thing you bring up because I'm, it's my personal opinion that the power of love and our, and like our truest center, like we all I think ultimately are good and some, you know, yes, we can be perverted and yes, there are some inherently evil people, but I always wonder if that's partly due to nature or nurture, right? You know? Well, it may be a, a matter, uh, uh, an evolutionary matter <clears throat> that uh, hunter gatherer discovered that if, he, if I go out today and I get berries and you don't get berries and I share my berries with you, tomorrow I might not get any berries and you get berries. And since I shared my berries with you, you might share your berries with me and the tribe survives and we're allowed to reproduce and multiply. <clears throat> so I think, you know, uh, altruistic reciprocity is... Uh, is part of explains the success of our species. You know that that you know there's a Hobbesian vision of uh, of competition and and um, violence and uh, uh, you know I'm going to get mine. You know, kind of a gangsterism, nihilism. It, it kind of has two forms. I think one is. Uh, you know, in Al Qaeda and ISIS and 
and you know terrorist violence, whether it's in the Middle East or in Michigan, um, uh, that's kind of a hard form of of nihilism, meaninglessness. Uh, and then there's a soft form, which is like I'm going to take care. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to take care of me and my family. I'm going to have a big house. I'm going to have money. You know, I'm going to study Kabbalah or I'm going to be an American Buddhist or something, but I'm going to be okay, you know, and, and disconnecting from the world and other people. Um, the only way to militantly oppose that meaninglessness, in my humble opinion, um, is through um, direct ethical action. In other words, actions and thoughts that move in the direction of human happiness and away from the direction of human suffering. And I think altruistic reciprocity is born out of that, that our tendency to share, our our tendency to form communities, you know, sometimes even though they're bounded and that causes a problem, but still our, 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 our willingness to come together with other people um, serves us well. And, and I think, you know, by taking direct action, and, and that certainly includes uh, political action, at least I can militantly oppose my own apathy because I've seen the enemy. <clears throat> the enemy is not the Republicans or the capitalists, the enemy is me. It's my own, my own laziness and my own fear and my own um, apathy and, and my own disconnection from the world. Because the solution is always in connection with other people. I mean, personally, I don't have much use for organized religion and I have absolutely no... Um, commitment to the supernatural. I just, you know, I, I think I understand it. I've studied these things over the course of my life. And I'm concerned with ha- what happens in the world with people as I experience, you know, like I'm not so much concerned with the meaning of life as I am the experience of life. Yeah, no, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, like I said, uh, uh, somebody once said to me, like, there are so many paths, just pick one, like whatever that means to you, right? Like, and do it. Like, don't just be like, oh, I kind of like the, you know, whatever that is. Uh, I, you know, organized religion for some people works, but for some people it's philosophy or, but at least like, it's more about like what we're talking about here is the center is the center, um, God, that just made me think of that. I think it's Chinua Achebe that things fall apart. I mean, what? look at all the things we have in common. You know, all people all around the world fundamentally want the same things. You know, they want to be safe in their community. They want to feel productive. They want to um, have a family that they can love and that loves them in return. They want to feel like they are are accomplishing something that they're part of something bigger than just them. It's a universal human truth. I mean, you know, these astronauts that go in space and look down and they don't see any political borders because 
this is all a construction of, of men, you know, this is all um, been attempts to conquer nature and conquer each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say, okay, so I'm just going to share that there are a few people that have spoken about you and that we should talk for years now. One of them is Shepard Ferry. You know, your influence on the better part of the music scene that I associate with is gigantic. Fairly common knowledge in at least the music world that I launched this band in Detroit in the 60s called the MC5. We were, uh, you know, militantly political, uh, revolutionary, hard rock band uh, with uh, with some some uh, ambitions that went beyond rock music, and um, we did not survive uh, success or failure. We never became a big hit band, and we broke up after. <clears throat> about four years. I think the band existed for about eight and and four after we started making albums and touring the world. And, um, you know, this is not unusual. This is what happens to most bands. You see them come and you see them go. Mostly, you see them go. Thousands and thousands of bands since the 60s that have all just disappeared into the ether. But the MC5... Took, um, took a stance uh, that was decidedly uh, uh, self-determination, self-efficacy, and, uh, and the power of young people to make a positive change. Um, and I think what set the MC5 apart from our contemporaries was that we dealt with um, people, our fans' concerns directly, head-on. We, we didn't put it off on the side. It's so, oh, yeah, I'm anti-war too, but mostly like I'm into acid or mostly I'm into the blues. You know, we, it was like when I stood on the stage and put my hand up in a fist and kids out in the audience did the same thing, we made a connection there. Um, none of which helped the MC5 survive. And, and I think there may have even been forces in play larger than I knew at the time. Um, and the band broke up and this happens to young people a lot. You know, we sell this great lie that if you're successful um, in whatever it is, movies, books, TV, music, theater, dance, <clears throat> that somehow you will be delivered to a good life. And there is a good life available but that isn't how you get it. Um, and, and I bought it and I wanted to be a success and I thought success was gonna deliver me to this People Magazine idea of you know, a house with a pool and beautiful children and a beautiful wife and, and you know, beautiful events and beautiful activities. And none of that showed up for me as it doesn't for most people. Um, and what you're left with you, you bought the lie and you did everything you had to do to achieve that success. And then you found out not only were you not better, you were worse. <laughs> and I discovered the wonderful pain-killing properties of heroin and vodka. <clears throat> this led me on a, a downward spiral 
um, where I discovered that being a criminal, being an outsider, being an outlaw had its own attractions. You could be a star in that world. You had to hurt people. You had to steal from people. You had to play people. And so I tried all that. And that culminated with me getting a four-year federal prison term. I went off to federal prison, served my time, made the most of it, um, had some amazing experiences in prison, met a wonderful artist who became my mentor and musical father. His name was Red Rodney. He was a jazz trumpeter who had replaced Miles Davis in the Charlie Parker Quintet. He was in his 50s then. I was in my 20s. So through Red, I got to learn a lot about music and a lot about what was ahead for me if I continued on the path I was on. After I was released from prison, prison became a big issue for me. And I started clocking what was happening. And every year I'd notice as the war on drugs ratcheted up, more and more people just like me were going to prison for longer sentences now under worse conditions than I served under. And, you know, first it was tens of thousands, then it was hundreds of thousands, then it was millions. And 30 years later, 2.3 million of our fellow citizens, our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers, sisters, brothers, children, are serving time in America's prisons. And long sentences, my same offense, carries a life sentence today. So as I watched what was going on, I started to get angrier and angrier. This was clearly a terrible injustice, a crime against humanity. And finally, I knew that I had to take action because otherwise this stuff will eat me up. I have to get it out of my head and I have to go out into the world and do something. Well, what can I do? Well, I'm a musician. You know, I always liked it when outside bands came into the prison I served in and put on a concert. So, okay, I could do that. So I started getting some of my rock star friends together to go into a prison. And one of the guys I brought in with me was Billy Bragg, the wonderful troubadour and activist from England, and on his guitar was written, stay free, jail guitar doors. And I said, what's up with that jail guitar doors, Billy? And he said, oh, it's an old Clash B-side. Have you ever heard it? And I said, heard it? Bill, the song's about me. <laughs> he said, what you mean? I said, what are the lyrics? He said, right, let me tell you about wine. And his deals of cocaine, bloody fucking hell. It is about you. So he started to explain to me he had launched an initiative, independent initiative in England, because he wanted to celebrate Joe Strummer's life's work. The Clash were huge to Billy Bragg, and they inspired him to combine his love of music and activism together. And a guy that worked in a British prison 
had written him to ask him if he could help him get some guitars to use as tools for rehabilitation with prison inmates. Um, and Billy said, well, okay, here's my initiative. I'll call it after that um, Clash B-side, Jail Guitar Doors, and I'll go around and stick up my rich artist friends for money and we'll buy guitars for prison. By the end of our event that day, it was at Sing Sing Prison in New York, um, he had convinced me that I needed to take this on in this country. And he said, good, because I was just about to task you with it. You're the only one that can do it because you've been inside. You know how the system works. And he's right. So on that day, uh, 11 years ago, um, me, my wife, Margaret, and Billy Bragg founded Jail Guitar Doors. Today, our instruments and programs are operating in over 160 American prisons and jails. Um, we're across country. We're at Rikers Island in New York. We're still at Sing Sing. We're in the Michigan Department of Corrections. We're in the Cook County Jail in Chicago. Um, we're in Nevada. We're in Colorado. We're in Texas. And we're on 10 California prison yards and we just launched a new initiative um, to work with young people. We're working upstream. If I can teach a kid that with two turntables and a microphone, he might find a way out of spending his adult life in the California Department of Corrections, then we're all ahead of the game. Wow, that's so awesome. I think you also just accidentally said a Beck lyric. Ten years ago, we really were pushing water uphill. But in the intervening decade, the, the, the states have realized they can't afford to build prisons and lock people up at the pace they were going. Um, the feds are slightly behind the curve um, because they're not suffering from the economics of it. There's also the realization that the get tough on crime policies that built up in the, with the death of Lem Bias and the coming of crack babies and, and you know, this whole kind of get tough on crime. We're going to lock people up for selling these poisons. And um, what, what the, what we've learned in 30 years is if you take people out of their communities, out of their families, put them in an environment where they're inculcated in violence, racism, defeat, bitterness, resentment, um, they get worse, not better. And then we plop them back out on the street with no programs to prepare them for returning to society. And it ends up we're not more safe, we're less safe. You know, 95% of the people in America's prisons are going to come home someday, and they're going to stand next to you in line at the supermarket, and they're going to sit next to me at the movie theater, and their kids are going to go to school with my kid, and, you know, who do I want in my community? People that have been brutalized for decades, and the only way they know how to relate to other human beings is violently or someone that's been given a shot at redemption, a shot at understanding how they got into trouble. 
a shot at here are some programs, here are some plans to help you avoid coming back to these prisons again. I mean, one of the things in our songwriting workshops that prisoners learn is how to collaborate with other people. In prison, uh, certainly in California's prison, gang culture is paramount. And the guards and the system use gang separations to manipulate prisoners and pit them against each other to control them. In our workshops, we do not recognize gang affiliations, neighborhoods, races, classes, sexual orientation. In our workshops, we're all artists and we're all regular human beings. And we can talk about anyone and anything, but we have to treat each other with dignity and respect. And the men love this. The women love it. The children love it because they get to be people, human beings, which is what they are. What are your musical influences and how did they affect your young life? They were the, the, the influences that were available to me as a kid, uh, you know, growing up in Detroit in the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, Elvis was hugely successful. Rock and roll was really exploding. The electric guitar had had uh, reached a point technologically where they were playable and they sounded good and they were reasonably priced. And uh, average, you know, working class family could afford a electric guitar for a, their kid and a little amp. Um, so, you know, as a guitar player, Chuck Berry was uh, probably my original inspiration. The instrumental groups of the early 60s, uh, you know, what they call uh, garage rock now, you know, these, these records that came and went, and you never heard from them again. Artists like Johnny and the Hurricanes or the Ventures or the Frogmen or... The, the royal teens. I mean, a lot of these were, were just production names of, of uh, professional musicians that recorded something and it sounded good and it got on the radio. Um, I was hugely influenced by the coming of the first British wave of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, and uh, the Who and uh, the Yardbirds. Jeff Beck was a huge influence. It still is. He's still my idol. Uh, I'm curious about the people you played with and had a band with, like Fred Sonic Smith and Johnny Thunders before that. Like, were they a, an influence on you musically? And did you feel a kind of sense of um, something I like to call healthy competition? Like, to where it really drove you to become better? Sure, sure. It, within the MC5 itself, um, Rob Tyner was uh, just a genius. In, in every definition of the term, uh, he had a vision for the band and the music, and he was just stunningly creative. Uh, you know, he could draw. He was a brilliant artist. He was a great lyricist, fantastic singer. He designed his own clothes. 
you know, he just reinvented himself over and over and over again. He was a true artist. And Fred Smith and I grew up playing guitars together. Uh, when I first started to try to get a band together and asked around at, at school, did any kids know of any other kids that played instruments that might want to be in a band with me? And someone said, well, I know a kid named Fred Smith. He plays bongos. And I thought, well, a band needs a bongo player. And I met him and, you know, we got along and, and I discovered that his his father was from the South and they had a guitar at home. So I spent one summer going over to his house and teaching him every day. I, I'd play the melody and I'd show him the chords and, and, uh, and then we started, we got electric guitars and then we started, we were in rival bands for a while and then we joined up and he took great pride in being a rhythm guitarist. That was his thing. And I was the lead guitarist. And then at a certain point in the MC5, one day I went down to the rehearsal room and Fred was playing these incredible single note solos. And I was like, God damn, man, what happened to you? You know, and he just, was just wailing. And man, he must have been woodshedding when I wasn't looking or wasn't listening because he could play all these solos. And then I started to realize. He had really developed his own thing as a rhythm player. And then our, 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 we played guitars together for so long that our styles actually moved into one style. And we could play simultaneously. We could both play complementary rhythm parts, or we could solo simultaneously. We could hear the other guy, and we could change the direction and the other guy would follow or the other guy would change the direction and I would follow. And we really developed a technique that I'm not sure I've seen done better yet. I, I did hear it one night. I went to see the, uh, the dirty projectors and they had a two guitar thing going. That was, it was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, inside the band, that there was a healthy competition. And then there was a even stronger competition outside the band because we wanted to make sure that everyone understood we were the bosses, we were the leaders. And in Detroit, we, we certainly were. And, you know, we carried that attitude with us because we kind of had a chip on our shoulder being from Detroit. You know, nothing cool could happen in Detroit. They make cars in Detroit. But we knew our influences were more stretched out than anything we were hearing in London or in San Francisco. Because by this time, John Sinclair had turned me on to the free jazz movement. And that's where I was able to go from my best Chuck Berry solo to my best Jeff Beck solo to saying, where do I go next? And I heard it in the music of Albert Eiler and John Coltrane and Sun Ra and Cecil Taylor. Archie Shep, that that music is what inspired me and the MC5 to push all the music into a more pure sonic dimension. 
Speaking of music, and it sounds like what you were talking about there was just reaching. It got you to a place where then you reached even further than what was like the obvious influences into a freedom as a musician yeah. and as an artist. Yeah. And that is like so cool. That makes that always gets me excited. But um, I think speaking of music and musicians, we have your launched artist in the waiting room, Brad Brooks, and we're going to talk about his new song, God Save the City. Thank you. Are you ready to welcome him to our conversation? Yes, indeed. Come on, B. Brooks. Welcome to Launch Left, Brad Brooks. Um, thank you for having me, first of all. I'm just super honored that Wayne picked me and kind of blown away. We know you have a new song, God Save the City. Well, the record comes out Friday, and uh, this song was one that um, uh, I live in Oakland, and um, but I've lived in San Francisco for a while, and I've just seen um, how gentrification and and the wealth of San Francisco has just changed the whole Bay Area and not always for the better. And um, I've just seen so much more homelessness and and even with COVID that's happened, it's even just grown even more. And um, uh, so this is a song um, that uh, I just felt like needed to be said. And uh, it is kind of a takeoff on God Save the Queen, uh, you know, by the Sex Pistols. But um I don't know whether it's venues that have been closed down. I mean, it's so strange since COVID has happened. It's just the song is even taking even more of a meaning because it's just um, more of what's in it has been happening from musical venues to being closed to the homeless situation is just really crazy out here. And, and, um, and I'm always like, well, where did they go? You know, there's a, there's a part in the video that, and I filmed a lot of it myself and, there's a part in the video where um, I drove by a homeless camp and I filmed it. And two days later, I just was driving by again and they were cleaning it out like just then. And I was like, well, where did they go? Like, where did these people, where did they go? And so, um, so that was uh, in the video part of it. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a crazy time. And, and I think this song kind of speaks to that and also to, you know, what happened with George Floyd and, and all of it. So um, I hope this song helps people out. Mm, thank you. Well, thanks for sharing it with us for sure. Um, and do you and Wayne, um, do you all, do you have questions for each other? How do you know each other? Uh, I, we met on the gig mm -hmm. and um, we were, we were going to do a, it had to do with um, what was it? Jeff. Uh, Jeff Buckley. Yeah. It was a, mother's book it was a uh, uh, tiffany de bartolo put out a graphic novel and yeah. but uh jeff buckley's mom was part of it and she was there and and um and we played and i got to jump up and sing kick out the jams with wayne and then um well you explain it and then i'll and i'll then then here's here's the best part so Brad says, uh, so what are you working on? And I said, eh, not much, man. I just got diagnosed with cancer and um, I'm kind of fucked up about it. And he said, stop, stop right there. Wait, listen, you can get through this. It happened to me. And I was like, huh? And then he went on to describe everything he had just gone through that I was just starting to go through. And we were cancer bros. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, I brought my representative with me behind me. I don't know if you can see that, but I always keep my little uh my uh, mask. 
my uh, mask here I as a reminder mask, uh, of the journey, you know. I was going to wear uh, it on Halloween. Yeah, because what people don't realize is that, you know, we had to be kind of strapped to a table and uh, they used laser radiation to to kill the the um, the lump. And it's uh, it's a very fearful thing. And um, I was just so glad that I was able to meet you. It just seemed like it's just meant to be because um, uh, I just, uh, you know, I hope that I helped you out and, and, um, and uh, you're just such an awesome person. And it really started, I, actually, Wayne said, so tell me about your life, you know, and you don't sit next to someone like that very often when they are, they are so open and just want to, you know, chat and talk. And so, yeah, we started talking about it and it turned out he was going through the same thing. And, and, um, and ho- hopefully I was able to help him out. You look great. You look like you're doing awesome and back to your fighting weight. I feel okay. Hey, listen, Brad, Brad was a pillar of strength and still is, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this stuff gets to me sometimes and we've had, uh, you know, he, he gives me a pull up often, you know, Mm -hmm. that, uh, that uh, he's a real brother. I, I adore him. And so Mm -hmm. when the chance to, you know, expose his work, uh, popped up on your show, I said, yes, let's, let's, this is B. Brooks action. <laughs> Yay. Uh, I feel so, so happy to be on this with you. This whole thing's about weirdo artists. So we're all at home. Uh, well, a word from our sponsor. Um, if anyone out there uh, wishes to join us in our work in America's prisons, um, they can go to jailguitardoors.org and learn everything there is about who we are, what we do, where we do it, how we do it, and you can help. That said, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Brad Brooks, B. Brooks, new single, God Save the City. Crank it. Thanks for being here. Thank you, too. Thank you so much for having me. See you, Brad. It's good good to meet you, and good to see you, Wayne. I'll talk to you later. Come Come on. Come on.
Launch Left aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left-of-center artists in all creative fields. 